sure to have you listening to my show today. My sincerest desire is for you to get something from it that will make your life richer, fuller, and safer. My name is Reverend Wynn Henderson. As an ordained Christian minister and a retired medical doctor, I have a dual perspective to bring you content to problems in your life. This podcast is the longest-running, single-hosted, spiritually-based radio, internet talk show in America. It's been on the air for over 24 years. I bring you information about the disease of addiction, about your purpose in life, and investigative reporting on truth just below the surface. Um, Our guests uh, today are Ronnie Ronnie Tishner and Jeannie Weaver. Their book is called Healing Begins With Us. And um, Ronnie has a Ph.D. in sociology, specializing in family studies from the University of Michigan. And Jenny received her degree from Vanderbilt School of Nursing and is a board-certified family nurse practitioner with over 25 years of experience in family practice and mental health. Um, They've got a real interesting story to tell about childhood trauma. So, ladies, it's nice to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Okay. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your family life history so that we can know uh, where you come from to write this book? Well, we grew up in a home with addiction, abuse, and mental illness. We spent much of our early life and early adulthood in denial about all of that and and the damage it had done to us. We spent, it was when we became um, parents in our late 20s that we started to unpack what had happened to us in terms of the childhood trauma. But we, we had a lot to unpack. We had, like most families with addiction, we had been pigeonholed into roles that had really pitted us against each other. I'm Ronnie. I'm the oldest. I was the hero of the family. So it was my job to, to bring glory to the family and to distract by uh, giving them, giving my parents somebody to point to. If if anybody ever uncovered that there were problems in our family, I could say, wait, there can't be anything wrong with us. Look at this great kid that we produced. And then my sister, Jenny, just a few years younger, she was the family scapegoat. All the psychic garbage of the family was dumped on her. She was what a therapist would call the identified patient. And all the family's troubles and problems would go away if she would just get her act together. So it was um, it was a long journey to sort of come out of that, unpack and come out of the denial associated with all of that, and then to try to move forward to break the cycle in our own families and to begin to heal our relationship as sisters. Um, so how many years did this childhood trauma affect you? I mean, how many years has it affected us? No, I mean, 
how many years were you affected by your childhood trauma? Well, I, I would say that it's, it's affected us our entire lives. Um, we certainly, you know, the whole 18 years each of us spent living with our parents, the the emotional and even physical abuse continued. Um, and as we moved into our 20s and tried to start our own families, the there was no more physical abuse, but there was still a substantial emotional abuse, particularly directed at Jenny and her role as a scapegoat. So, Jenny, you might want to say a little more about that. Yeah, so just because we, we reach, you know, adulthood doesn't mean that the dynamics really change um, when you're talking about a family with addiction and abuse. And and we had, I believe, five out of the, how many is it, Ronnie? Nine. Nine adverse childhood uh, experiences. And so the dynamics continue. My I, Even though I, I left home, I, I married, um, actually against my parents' wishes, they, they, they didn't like my husband. Um, it, it, it just, they just found different ways to tell me that I was still a mess. I was, you know, that my life was a mess, that I, I wasn't competent enough to make healthy choices. Um, even down to when I decided to have my first child, they told me I had no business having children. I mean, the control goes on. The control never stops because the whole point of addiction and abuse is to maintain control and maintain the secrets of what happened in the family. And, and so that never really goes away. It just is perpetuated. Uh, and even even as trying to become healthier, as I was going through, you know, mental health counseling, you know, trying to figure out what's wrong with me, um, and the healthier I became or the more insightful and aware I became coming out of denial, actually the, the, the more the dynamic spiraled out of control and the more volatile my parents became toward me. So there is a tremendous amount of resistance on the part of um, the addicts as well as the abusers because the whole name of the game is nothing is their fault and everything is everybody else's fault. Um, and their misery and their pain is everybody else's fault. And so if one member in the family, especially the scapegoat, um, is trying to become healthy and trying to break out of that role, then there's going to be, you know, chaos ensuing because the whole point is to maintain the balance in that dysfunctional family mobile and I just wasn't um, playing my part I was trying to um, create a healthy and a happy life for myself and my parents just would not have it well I'm uh, looking at your media kit and I noticed uh, an article that you wrote I think I'll read it um, are you a survivor of trauma or abuse it may sound odd, but many people who were victimized by their families don't fully realize it until they are well into adulthood. Growing mm-hmm. in a home with addiction and abuse creates very distinct and predictable dynamics. The most basic of these is denial. Another is fear. Addicts are often unpredictable, even unstable. They're prone to be more abusive, more verbally and physically, as was in the case in our home with an alcoholic father and a mentally unstable mother. We grew up feeling isolated, not just from the outside world, but from each other. We were afraid to bring friends home because we didn't know who or what would greet us. 
living with fear and with abuse, an ever-present possibility, we learn to hide from everyone and everything. Research from the CDC shows that more than 60% of adults report having had at least one adverse childhood experience. You call that ACEs. Mm-hmm. And nearly mm-hmm. 25% report three or more. The most prevalent are emotional abuse, parental separation or divorce, and household substance abuse. But other examples include physical abuse, domestic violence in the home, and emotional and physical neglect. We had five ACEs in our household and were borderline for at least one more. Stuffing down pain and trauma doesn't contribute to our well-being. It undermines it. But trying to unwind a lifetime of fear and dysfunction is a painfully slow task. It wasn't until we began to have children of our own that we first recognized the addiction and abuse in our family. We noticed very disturbing family patterns in the family that were interfering with our ability to create stable, loving homes of our own. Our desire to be good parents motivated us to break our multi-generational cycle of addiction and abuse. If you come to realize you've experienced ACEs, we want you to know that gaining an intellectual understanding of the past is important, but it's only one of the first steps. Healing will also require examining what has happened and is happening to you right now, mentally, emotionally, and physically. So um, what do you want to say to the people who are listening to you today with respect to am I one of the people that they are talking about? Well, we, as part of that article, and and actually on our website, we have a little quiz that we've created for people to take, you know, just sort of yes or no questions. Did you feel these dynamics where you were afraid in your home, where you, um, you know, were forced to play roles similar to what Jenny and I have described? Um, actually, one of the key questions people can ask themselves is, are my family relationships an ongoing source of pain? If the people that are supposed to love you most, you actually walk away from your interactions with them feeling bad about yourself, there's a really good chance that you grew up in a home with dysfunction very similar to ours. I would say that's probably the simplest and most straightforward question that people can ask themselves. Mm-hmm. And they can go over to your website to get more information. What is your website? Uh, it's www.ronnieandjenny.com. R-O-N-N-I-A-N-D-J-E-N-N-I-E dot com. Okay. And there you can take our survivor quiz. Now, to get a copy of your book, it's available on Amazon, I'm sure? It is, yes. Healing Begins With Us, Breaking the Cycle of Trauma and Abuse 
and rebuilding the sibling bond. Uh, so they can go over Amazon and get that. Um, so what are some of the discoveries that you made along the way um, with uh, your with your background? Uh, tell us about one, uncover who you are. Jenny, would you like to take that one? Um, so discovering who who I am, I think discovering that I would say that that came out early in mental health counseling. Um, discovering also while I was in training as a family nurse practitioner, you know, it was a real eye opener to um, be in a psychology, you know, uh, class discussing the dynamics of an addicted family and the roles that the children played, the hero, the scapegoat, and the invisible child, for example. Um, and, and the instructor, you know, could tell that she, she hit a lot of, she struck a lot of chords for people in the classroom. And, and it was really then that I, that I, I said, oh, my God, I'm the scapegoat, and we grew up in an alcoholic home. There was no doubt as you're hearing the dynamics and, and especially triangular communication where all communication goes through one person, usually the codependent, which who is our mother. Um, and, and that family members don't really talk to each other directly. They talk to the person in control and then the person in control in the triangular communication then disseminates the information. However, that person chooses. And in our situation, it was often disseminated incorrectly. And, and oftentimes there were flat out lies. And all of that is about maintaining control and keeping everybody isolated emotionally from each other and also, you know, very effectively keeping us from talking to each other. It was not okay to talk to each other directly, which may sound insane, but back in the days before cell phones and the Internet, um, that's how our mother kept us in line. And so that was a, that was a, a shift in my self-identity because who, who wants to recognize or identify themselves as a survivor of trauma and, or addiction. And so I, I think I started down that path a few years ahead of Ronnie um, because I was entering into counseling, trying to, trying to connect the dots of why I was a doormat in many of my relationships, whether it was at work or friendships where I was, I was, used quite quite a bit i was the um the giver and 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 you know not really receiving much support in return and i recognized these patterns and and that's what really prompted me to go to counseling i wanted to be the best wife i could be this was early in my marriage and and when we were discuss, discussing having children i wanted to be the best mother i could be and I knew that I wanted things to be better. I knew that I was in pain. I knew that I was struggling with depression and anxiety. And I wanted to know why. I wanted to know what was causing this. And so it was really, I have to say, the, the mental health counseling and, of course, my own studies that really brought a lot of this to light for me and really accelerated my recovery process. Okay, the second point is to move through the fear. What did you mean by that? Well, moving through the fear is, you know, when you grow up in, in a home with adverse childhood experiences and trauma, 
you live in fear constantly. Fear is the main emotion that you feel. And, and really what we are taught is to deny the fear, ignore the fear, um, and it kind of it, it basically immobilizes you. So, so really moving through the fear is beginning to recognize what fears you have and then realizing that it's actually less painful to, to face the fear and to move through it, to decide to take that action, even though you're afraid to do it because you intellectually understand that it is important for you to do it, such as going to counseling, such as reaching out for help. Um, it's very difficult to disclose when you're a survivor. You feel you've been told all your life that you're not in pain, you, nothing happened to you, you're, you're just overly sensitive, and so you're taught to um, not believe what you are feeling and experiencing, not believe what you're seeing and what you're hearing, um, and that something must be wrong with you. And so it's, it's difficult to break out of that denial. There's a lot of fear around breaking out of that denial um, because it changes your identity. Your whole identity is, is changing, and that can be very frightening. Uh, your next point is you should allow yourself to cry. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. We, were, we were not allowed to cry because we were told that nothing's wrong with you. You know, we just beat you, but but you deserved it, and therefore, you know, you don't, you know, stop crying or I'll give you something else to cry about, which meant we were going to get a worse beating. So we were taught that crying and showing emotion and showing pain was not acceptable. And so it took a lot for Ronnie and I and I'll let Ronnie speak about that, um, to learn to allow ourselves to cry, to to acknowledge our own pain. No, that's Jenny's absolutely right. And what you, your initial question was, what did I discover about myself as I've been moving through this recovery process? And I think that one of the things I discovered is that by shutting myself off from, you know, feeling the emotions that were scary and overwhelming as a child, including what Jenny said, fear and denial, but also letting myself be sad and, and cry meant that I was I was not fully human. I was not I was not able to experience the full range of, of what was going on in my life. And that as I moved through recovery, I learned to allow myself to feel the sadness and to cry. And that once I did that, it was kind of, it was a way of sort of moving that energy out. It was a way of giving it a release, giving it permission to go. Like I could experience it and could be really sad and perhaps really upset for a short period of time, and then it could leave me. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the miraculous things that I discovered as we moved through recovery, that all these emotions that had been bottled up, I had to revisit them, and it wasn't always fun, but mm-hmm. I could also learn to let them go and then put those experiences and emotions into perspective over time. The uh, next uh, point, as you said, to let go of toxic relationships. Mm. Yeah, and that, that's hard. It's very difficult to do that because you're you are you are born into and you are conditioned by toxic relationships. So that's all you know, and so it's very difficult to come to the realization that my relationship with my parents and my brother is incredibly toxic. I knew by the age of fourth grade that my brother hated me. Um, and this was all conditioned, you know, behavior. I don't blame him. This was part of our conditioning. Um, so so it, it took me several years recognizing that these relationships were incredibly abusive, that were hurting me, that were hurting my, 
um, and beginning to hurt my children as I was starting to have children. And, you know, just because you are blood related to somebody doesn't mean that you should stay in abuse. Um, and actually, you know, it's not honoring anybody to, to knowingly stay in an abusive relationship. And so, you know, you, you have to come to a point where if, if the other people are not willing to recognize the problems, are not willing to work on the problems, you can forgive them, but you must step out of range and stay out of range in order for you to heal and to live a more healthy and, and fulfilling life. It's, you know, we, we tell women all the time, if you're in an abusive marriage, you need to get out. You need to get out and stay, stay out of range. It's no different if you're born into a family that is abusing you that continues to abuse you. If they're toxic relationships, they are not helping you in any way. You can wish them love. You can wish them healing, pray for them. But at some point, if they continue in their abusive behavior, you need to step out and you need to stay out of range. And that's what we had to do. Eventually we made that painful decision to break from both our brother and our parents because they wouldn't stop with the hurting and the harmful behaviors and wouldn't, didn't want to do anything to try to heal. And the final point is that you say, explore resources for healing. Which resources? Oh, there's so many good resources out there. I know that I started um, going to adult children of alcoholics meetings um, and, and found such comfort in all these amazing people that, had very similar dynamics to what I grew up with. Um, there, of course, mental health counseling. I, it, it's very helpful to explore what happened to you with a counselor who is trained and very knowledgeable in addiction and abuse. And it's important to ask that up front because I have had some counseling experiences with counselors that had absolutely no training in addiction or abuse issues, which is very sad that, um, that that's not mandatory. In, um, in degrees for counseling, whether it's clinical psychologists or, um, or you know, or social workers, or um, it, it's, it's, it's such a common problem, not just in our country, but around the world. That, um, so it is important, I think, to make sure that you interview your counselor before you go to know that they are experienced in uh, the areas of addiction and abuse, if those are issues that you're dealing with. The other thing is that we we read a lot of books when we yes. were first trying to figure things out. And that's one of the things that motivated us to write about our story is because we read about so many other people's firsthand accounts about what it felt like in their families. And we were able to see some of our story in them and recognize that we're not crazy. These yes. really are harmful and destructive patterns that we're seeing. And then the other reason we felt compelled to come forward is that in all the reading we've done on recovery and, you know, childhood trauma, there's a lot of work being done on very good work being done on it, but we've not seen anything that addresses the damage that's done to the sibling relationships. The fact that Jenny and I are the closest of sisters now is really a miracle because in most families, the hero and the scapegoat are permanently at odds. And in many cases, they're also permanently estranged. The, the parents have done that good of a job of turning them against each other. So we think it's very important for people to, as they're healing, to also think about reaching out to a sibling if they have one um, that they think they they might be able to talk to and be a little open with and, and even vulnerable with. 
because one of the pieces of our recovery story is that neither one of us would ever have made it as far as we did without the other because we had each other to validate memories and stories. And sometimes, you know, I would say, you know, I remember this story and it just seems so cruel. It can't possibly have happened that way. There must be something I'm missing in my memory. And Jenny would say, no, no, I remember that. It happened exactly like that. It was exactly that cruel. So it's so easy to gaslight ourselves because our parents have gaslighted us so much over the years telling us we're not really hurting you, you're fine, you're too sensitive, This is there's nothing wrong here. Um, we continue to do that to ourselves as we get older, and my sister has been there as a reality check for me to help me stay grounded in what actually happened to me so that I can heal more fully and completely from it. This sort of seems to me like some of my work uh, during the COVID times, and the premise is if you hear a lie often enough, you'll begin to believe it. Um, mm-hmm. if, yeah. if your parents lie to you every day, sooner yeah. or later you're going to start to believe them. Absolutely. That's the only reality that you are presented with. And so you're constantly being undermined to deny your own senses, to deny what you are witnessing and experiencing and diminish it. Absolutely. It's it's like slow boiling a frog. You're in, you're slowly, they're slowly turning up the water and you don't know enough to jump out because you've been conditioned so thoroughly. And it's all you have with your family. Absolutely. The book is called Healing Begins With Us. Um, Breaking the Cycle of Trauma and Abuse and Rebuilding the Sibling Bond. Now, if you think that there's a possibility that you have been suffering or did suffer from childhood trauma and abuse, you should definitely read this book. And uh, the authors said you can get it at Amazon, and um, probably you can get your bookstore to order it. But it's a very good it's book. Awesome. Thank you. It is also available on audiobook. Ronnie and I did record an audiobook that is available on Audible and iTunes. Okay, go to Audible and uh, listen to them talk about Healing Begins With Us. Um, Jenny and Ronnie, uh, we're coming to the end of our program. Do you have any other wise words of wisdom that you want to leave our audience with? Ronnie, would you like to go first? Sure. I would say that if people are trying to pursue recovery, one of the things you need to do is recover your trust in yourself and your ability to know what you know. And so I would say to people, just empower yourself to do whatever you think would be helpful to you as you're trying to understand what happened to you and you're trying to recover from it. Absolutely. And also try to embrace the change because even though even though you've been you've been conditioned, you know, in the adverse childhood experiences of the addiction and abuse, change can be frightening, but it also is what is most necessary in order to heal. And so embrace that change and try to be open to to receiving help uh and asking for help because there's so much available out there um to support you. Yeah, that's one of the keys. You have to ask for help and be willing to take it when it's offered to you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And those are the two things. Well, thank you, ladies, for being on the program today and talking about your book, Healing Begins With Us. Now, I'm going to say that my mission or purpose in life is to spread the message that there is a cure for every addictive behavior. Now, this is a spiritual cure, and the treatment program is profiled in my book, Freedom from Addiction 4, The Final Message. If you meet three simple criteria, everyone cures their addiction. My book is available on Amazon.com. I have three free resources where you can start your journey. The first is a link to this podcast, and the link is freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. Spell Libson, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N. No spaces, no caps. The second is a link to my website where you can find out more about my work with addiction. It is www.revwinhendersonmd.com. And the final resource is my Twitter account. Search for at Hugo the Artist on Twitter.com. There you will find over 2,200 inspirational and educational pearls of wisdom. And that concludes our program today. It was so nice to have uh, these two ladies um, telling us about their experience. And I would uh, suggest that if you have a similar type problem, that this is where to go. Get a copy of Healing Begins With Us. Thank you, ladies. Thank Thank you so much. We enjoyed being with you.